0: Welcome to Gestational Diabetes Club. I'm your host, Helena, dietitian, nutritionist, vegetable enthusiast, and big fan of strong coffee and dark chocolate. Join me here each week to chat about all things gestational diabetes. We'll cover everything you need to know about your nutrition, lifestyle and all the messy bits in between so that you can feel empowered to optimise your blood sugar, grow a healthy baby and create sustainable healthy habits to last a whole lifetime without the stress, overwhelm, guilt or confusion. Thanks so much for joining me and I hope you love it here. Welcome back to Gestational Diabetes Club. This is episode number four and today we are talking all about glycemic index or GI um, and I wanted to talk about this today because I think across the board, this is probably the piece of advice that seems the most common for people to receive once you've been diagnosed with gestational diabetes. I feel like regardless of whatever else you've been told about managing your blood sugar through your diet and your lifestyle, pretty much everybody has been taught that eating low GI foods is beneficial for your blood sugar. But today I thought we might as well break down what GI actually means what that means in terms of um, what's happening in your body, what some of the pros and the cons are of looking at GI, um, and then whether I practically recommend it to my clients or how, I suppose, I incorporate it into my management plans. So, yeah, let's, let's just talk about it. So, first of all, GI stands for glycemic index, and glycemic index is basically a system to rank carbohydrates according to how quickly they raise the level of glucose or sugar in your blood. So each food is given a number from zero to 100 and 100 would mean that that a food raises the sugar in your blood really quickly. And so the reference foods for that are typically things like white bread, pure sugar, jelly beans. So we know those sorts of foods would make your sugar go really, really high in your bloodstream and then likely fall back down pretty quickly. And then if a food is closer to the zero end of the scale, then it is considered low GI. And so generally, this means that foods are going to be um, taking a little bit longer to be broken down by the body, which means that then they're not converted into sugar as efficiently, which means that your blood sugar stays more stable, I suppose, it doesn't go up very quickly. And it can help to visualize a graph if you think about this. And hopefully somebody's shown you a graph that looks like this, where you've got, I guess you've got the the two axes So you've got the bit that goes up and the bit that goes across. And then there'd be one line that's like a really sharp peak. So you get a really big tall curve and then it goes down pretty quickly again. And that would be what would look, what it would look like if you were eating a really high GI food. So something like, um, a jelly bean that would raise your sugar really quickly and then fall back down again versus if you had something that was lower GI and then on the graph that would look like a line going up fairly slowly and evenly and then kind of almost plateauing out before it starts to drop back down again. So not as not anywhere near as dramatic a curve as the other line that would represent a high GI food. So this would be a lower GI food and just for ease, let's say that something like a really grainy piece of bread might be something that's considered lower GI that would raise your blood sugar to a smaller extent so it doesn't go as high overall. And it takes a little bit longer to get to its peak, I guess. And, but it's not, a, it's not a sharp rise and then a sharp fall. It's just like almost a nice, even, gentle curve up, flat line a little bit, and then start to fall back down gradually as well. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that you've seen a graph like that somewhere. But if not, I'll make sure I put one up on social media so that you can see it visually because I think that does help. Anyway. Let's talk about the numbers again. So 100, as I said, is kind of that reference number where we know that that's when things are really high GI, but anything above 70 is considered high GI. And then any food that is um, between 55 and 70 is classified as medium GI. So that would include things like wholemeal bread and basmati rice. And then low GI would be any food that is ranked as Um, less than 55, so that is generally things that are high in fibre, high in protein, um, and or high in fat. So foods like dairy foods, like yoghurt, legumes like chickpeas and lentils, um, and like dense seeded bread. Those sorts of foods are generally considered low GI. And we'll talk a little bit more about some food examples at the end. Um, Something important to know about how these foods are classified is that the system... Rates foods that have equal amounts of carbohydrates in them, and that's done in isolation. So, what that means is it would be comparing, let's say you've got 15 grams of jelly beans, and that would essentially all be carbohydrate. And so then they'd be comparing that to, let's say, like 15 grams of the, the like 15 grams of carbohydrate worth of yogurt. Okay. And so then they'd be comparing just how those two foods in isolation impact somebody's blood sugar. And I guess there's a few flaws in the way that's been mapped out because it doesn't really take into consideration the context of what you're eating because you might not just eat that portion of yogurt or jelly beans in one sitting and you might have other foods and things like that. And you might have done some exercise and different people have different um, variability in how their blood sugar responds. So just keep that in mind that even, you know, down to the way that they test and they work out things like glycemic index, there's always flaws and that's not a criticism as such. It's just something to be aware of because you have to be realistic as well. We can't do research perfectly. We really can't. You've got to make some calls in terms of, okay, well, what, what is a potentially useful thing for us to find out? How foods impact somebody's blood sugar? Like, yeah, that is useful to find out, but we can't actually create perfect Test conditions, or even if we can, they don't always represent life conditions. So just bear that in mind, I suppose. What I'm getting at really is the fact that, practically, so in the real world, we eat food and we don't eat isolated nutrients. So that means that there are a lot of variables at play when we're choosing our meal. And so, in that way, glycemic index can start to become a little bit less important. So we've got to consider the actual quantity of food that's been eaten, other foods that have been eaten at the same time, cookie methods, and even like the ripeness of your food. Things like that can all play a role in how your body is going to handle that food and whether your blood sugar goes up and spikes or whether it stays nice and stable or whether it doesn't rise at all or whether potentially it drops. So again, while glycemic index does give us some helpful information about the food, it doesn't always tell us the full story. So I just thought in this episode, let's just talk about some of those different variables in a little bit more detail. So, and it'll be, you know, I'm not going to take ages talking through all of these things, but I think it's important to be aware of. So let's start with portion size. So as I was kind of alluding to, even though certain foods are considered low GI, if you eat too much of them, your blood sugar will still go high and might even spike. So as I guess like as a bit of an extreme example, I like to use examples in extremes because I think it paints the picture a bit easier, but let's say you were eating low GI bread. And so you bought like a really nice dense seedy multi-grain piece of bread. And we know that it's low GI and you're feeling great about that. Um, But let's say you had the whole loaf of bread. So according to the system of glycemic index, that's a low GI food, so it won't raise your blood sugar too much. However, the load definitely matters. So if you're eating that whole loaf of dense multigrain seeded bread that's considered low GI, your blood sugar is absolutely still going to go high because you've had such a big load of carbohydrate all at once. And by comparison, let's say you had just one slice of a refined white piece of bread So we know that's considered high GI. So something that's likely to make your blood sugar go high. And then we paired that with some other stuff. Or actually, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because that was my next point. But I guess what I'm getting at there is that if you had just one slice of the refined white bread that's considered high GI, your blood sugar is going to go high, right? But it's actually probably going to stay lower than if you ate the whole loaf of the low GI bread. So the volume of what you're eating absolutely matters. So hopefully I've explained that okay. And then we go into like the context, which is what I was just kind of racing ahead and talking about just then. So we rarely eat foods on their own, right? Rarely would you sit down to eat a whole loaf of bread. And I mean, rarely as well, would you probably sit down and eat just one slice of um, white toast on its own? I mean, you might do that. That's less weird, but we generally, we eat things like in combination with other foods. So let's say you had one to three slices of bread plus some toppings. So let's say you were having that high GI, um, white refined piece of bread again. But let's say you added to it half an avocado, two or three eggs, some sliced tomato and some wilted spinach. This would really change how your body is going to digest and metabolise that bread. So it's still important whether the bread was high or low GI, but we've got all of these other sources of food that are going to buffer the impact of the carbohydrate now. Because now we've added in fat from the avocado. We've added in fiber from the avocado and the tomato and the spinach. And we've added in acid from things like the tomato. And we've added in protein from those eggs. So these sorts of components, so fat, protein, and fiber, they take longer for your body to break down. And um, if it takes your body longer to break down a certain food, then it's that, that means that the, the sugar molecules are broken down slower. So then they are released into the bloodstream slower, which means that your blood sugar is going to be less likely to spike and is going to stay stable for longer. So we've got to factor that in as well. And it might still be important whether you chose the dense seeded, multi-grain low GI bread in that context, um, as opposed to the refined white bread. But if you're somebody whose sugars are looking pretty okay most of the time, then it's not such a huge issue. And so let's put it in another context. And let's say you really liked like short-brained white rice and you are having an appropriate portion and you are having um, a meal that was really well balanced with all of those other components in there, like a good source of protein, some healthy fats, lots of fiber from some veggies, things like that then maybe it wouldn't be an issue for you, whether you were choosing the basmati or the jasmine. Now, the next thing that we need to consider is the cooking method. So this is an interesting one, and I'm gonna use potato as our good example here, because on its own, we know that white potato would be considered high GI. But depending on how you prepare the potato, the GI can actually change, and it can change quite significantly. So let's say, first of all, you tried to eat the potato raw. We all know that we don't eat potatoes raw and there's a reason for that because it would just be full of all of this starch that our body can't really break down. It wouldn't taste very nice and we would feel probably pretty unwell trying to eat that. So if we did, if we did have a crack, it would take our body ages to digest because it's going to do a lot of work breaking down all of those starches and things that are holding it all together. So blood sugar would be pretty slow to rise because it would just, it would be a big journey big effort for the body to break it down when we cook potato we do some of the work of the digestion for our body so then when we eat it it takes less time to break it down the carbohydrate is more readily accessible so our blood sugar is going to increase relatively quickly and if we think about that um again and we extend on that the more you process something the less your body has to do so let's say you're eating a baked potato it's undergone some level of processing because you've cooked it. But if you then cooked it further and it was broken down into like a potato chip or like a bag of chips, that changes things again because it's been heavily processed at this point. So our body has to do pretty much nothing to try and break that down. It's going to be broken down pretty quickly. Those sugar molecules are going to be released really easily into our bloodstream. Our sugar is probably, probably going to go higher than if we were eating the baked potato, say. And interestingly, again, if we take that further, (laughs) if we cook the potato and then we cool it down again, so for example, if you're having a potato salad, the potato actually forms something called resistant starch. And this is something that our body actually can't digest and it slows down the whole digestive process. So in turn, this changes the GI pretty dramatically, maybe more than you might think. And it can actually turn a high GI food, so the high GI white potato, into a potentially low GI food that's going to be much less impactful on your blood sugar. And then interestingly, as a side note, even if you then reheat that cold potato again, it'll it'll increase the GI, so it'll um, break down some of those starches that have been created and it'll increase the GI again to some extent, but it will not go back to being as high GI as it was when you first cooked it. And there's a similar concept if you're cooking pasta. So pasta is already considered a pretty low GI food. um, But if you cook your pasta al dente, as the Italians like us to do, so it's a little bit chewier um, and it takes our body a little bit longer, it's a little bit more work to break it down and digest it, then that's going to have a lower GI than if we cook it to death and it's really soggy and our body has to do pretty much nothing to digest it, break it down, release the sugar molecules into our bloodstream. So just some things to keep in mind. Your cooking method definitely uh, makes a difference. And the next factor that you might not have thought about is ripeness of food. So banana is a good example here. So we think about an unripe banana. So think about trying to eat a really green banana. And it doesn't taste very good, right? It's kind of hard to eat because it just feels, I don't know, it's almost like chalky. It's a bit gross. Um... And that's because it's got quite a lot of starch at that point. And as it ripens, that starch converts into sugar. So as you might expect, when the ratio of sugar to starch is higher, the banana sorry, banana is easier to break down and will raise your blood sugar faster. So eating foods that are a little bit underripe is going to have a lower GI than if you eat them when they're really ripe and have more sugar developed in them. And that's not always super relevant, but just, you know, it's another interesting, I think it's just another interesting point to keep in the back of your mind that GI is not always this thing that is set in stone. It can fluctuate based on these different variables. So I guess the question is lower GI always a better choice? And I think it depends because we can see that in the overall bigger picture of your diet, we can't solely depend on eating low GI foods for lower blood sugar. And if you're somebody without diabetes or insulin resistance or, you know, you don't have trouble regulating your blood sugar, it's probably an even less important thing to be considering. So you can definitely have a healthy diet, I would say, without all of your carbohydrate choices being low GI. But that is dependent on you also having a well-balanced diet and eating lots of other foods that have the other beneficial components like fibre, protein and fat in them. And then, you know, if you're doing all of those things, then like I said earlier, the choice between something like basmati or jasmine rice is probably not overly impactful. I'm not saying, though, that this is something that you should just throw out the window, because I still do think that looking at the GI of your foods is important in the context of gestational diabetes. Um, But, you know, another little side note here is just to say that in some cases, the high GI food can actually be more beneficial as well. So for example, high GI foods are a really perfect uh, fuel source to use before exercise. So especially if you were doing like a really high intensity session at the gym or you're doing an endurance event like a marathon or half marathon or just a really long run, anything like that, um, your body can break down high GI foods really quickly and easily. So it's not uncommon for sports dietitians, say, to be recommending that somebody have like rice cakes and honey, crumpets and honey or a uh, let's say like a couple of lolly snakes something like that before a workout or even during their workout to keep them going and to give them that really quick energy that's going to be way more beneficial for somebody that needs that um fuel in their system without needing to be or sorry without wanting to have that heavy feeling of like a low gi high fiber high protein food that's going to take longer to break down and move out of their stomach and be digested so think about that too. It's not always black and white in nutrition. But I guess at the end of the day, low GI foods tend to be inherently like good for us, I suppose you could say. They tend to be uh, minimally processed. They tend to be, I guess, on balance, more nutritious because the things that make them low GI often give us a separate added benefit. So it's generally have, if the food also contains some protein which, as we know, slows digestion, slows your ability to break things down and is also really important for all of your body's functions. Um, Or the food might be really high in fibre, which, again, we know is harder for the body to break down and is also super, super important for our gut health and feeding our good gut bacteria so that they can thrive and produce beneficial compounds that impact our whole body. Um, And low GI foods are probably also higher in healthy fats. So the fat as well can slow digestion um, and is also really beneficial to help with our production of things like hormones and our temperature regulation and to help with all of the functions of growing your baby. And that includes things like omega-3, which are important for brain health and eye health and um, preventing preterm labour. And foods that are low GI are also likely to be really high in micronutrients and things like antioxidants. So what I'm getting at here is if you're following a diet where you're aiming to mostly eat whole foods that are minimally processed, you're naturally likely to be choosing low GI foods anyway. So it does make sense to recommend them. Um, And we also do have some research. There's a meta-analysis, which is one of our, or it is the highest level of research we really have because what that means in a meta-analysis is that they have pulled together different studies And then they have analysed the findings of all of those studies around a certain topic, so we get kind of the overall um, summary or conclusion of what the bulk of the evidence is showing us. So a meta-analysis in 2016 suggested that for women with gestational diabetes, choosing low GI foods can reduce the risk of having a large baby, so that's called macrosomia. And this association was particularly strong when they looked at diets that were low GI and also high in fiber. So we got an additive benefit of having extra fiber. So what this means is that you're better off choosing something that is naturally low GI, like I was just saying, so choosing those whole foods that have been minimally processed that are also naturally high in protein, fat, fiber, and micronutrients. So, for example, something like a dense seeded bread, like I was talking about before, rather than a sourdough bread or a white bread that's labelled low GI or a low GI brown rice instead of choosing like a short grain low GI rice. So choose those more natural foods, I guess, rather than the foods that have been um, formulated and labelled as low GI, because then we also get those other added benefits of it being high in fibre and being high in those other beneficial components. So do I recommend a low GI diet? I suppose the answer is yes, (laughs) but I don't think that it is the utmost, most important factor in your diet. And I look at it from a bigger picture, I suppose, zoomed out approach where I'm thinking that if we're focusing on those more beneficial foods, our diet is naturally going to be low GI anyway. And if there is a certain food that you particularly like that is higher GI, then I would actually just be looking at ways that we can incorporate that and the context around that food to mean that you can still include it if you really want to have that. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. If your blood sugar is not going high from eating that food, we can keep it in. You can eat the foods that you love. And, you know, you don't have to make every single choice in your diet. It doesn't always have to be the most nutritious, the lowest GI. What we really need to be doing is, you know, it's almost a game of trial and error. We see what works and if it doesn't work, we can tweak it. But think about your diet from a bigger picture. I suppose is always my main message. And think about trying to include those foods that are really wholesome and do give you all of those benefits in one, rather than choosing those um, those foods that have been designed or labelled as low GI. So, I guess as well, I've got a little side note here that. You can tell by this discussion that I would also be recommending eating carbohydrates in gest- if you have gestational diabetes because often when we're talking about the glycemic index of a food, we're talking about carbohydrate-based foods. So I think that it is important to still be including carbohydrates and just to be ensuring that the ones that you're choosing are really good quality, that give you lots of um, nutritional value and are likely going to be inherently low GI as well. So... Some examples of some optimal low GI foods to be choosing would be things like, like keep mentioning, something like a dense seeded bread. So if you can visually see like the the grains and the seeds inside a bread, then it's probably a good choice. And if it's like a seeded uh, multi-grain sourdough, that would also be a good choice. Um, Wholemeal pasta, quinoa, oats, muesli with no added sugar, most types of fruit, um, whole grain high-fibre cereals, Basmati rice, legumes, nuts, noodles, most vegetables. So you've got some options, um, and I think yeah, again, like I keep saying, the most important thing is having variety in your diet. Going for foods that are going to give you loads of nutritional value, and are likely going to be low GI anyway. So I hope that that discussion has taught you something. I hope you've learned something there, and I hope that you take something away from it. I would love to know. I would absolutely love your feedback. So. I would really appreciate it if you liked this episode, if you could leave a rating or a review or share this uh, podcast with somebody else who might find it interesting. And you can absolutely always um, send me your feedback or any ideas for topics or anything that you would like to hear about. If you want to email me or send me a DM on Instagram, that is totally fine. I'd love to hear from you. So I'll leave it there, but it's been lovely chatting and I will talk to you next time. Bye. That is it for today's episode, thank you so much for listening and if you haven't already please make sure that you subscribe or hit the plus button so that you can get new episodes delivered straight to your podcast app every week and if you did find this episode useful I would appreciate it so so much if you could leave a rating and review or share it with a friend, it helps me reach more people so that I can help them take some of the stress out of gestational diabetes too. And if you want to keep learning about all things gestational diabetes, head to my website to find all the ways that I can support you. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Bye.